Okay. Hang on. Second Peter 3. Are you surprised? We're almost always in two. We're trying three tonight. We are going to try three. We've been actually walking through Second Peter entirely, and we are into chapter three. This is a this is a really fun little section. The first two verses, especially, I, I love these verses, and I couldn't wait to come and share these things with you here tonight. Um, it says, "This is now, beloved." The second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This is going to be fun. Heavenly Father, help us as we study this passage here tonight to uh, just get a a good view of Peter's heart in ministry. And may it be something that we find uh, desirable to be within us too. Uh, teach us something through this, we pray, uh, as to the manner and method in which we share with other people too. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a couple of simple things here. It's really not a complicated little passage there are three words, and they all start with P's, so that really helps too. We're going to look at Peter's passion, and Peter's practice, and Peter's purpose. All in these two little verses. And it sounds really simple, doesn't it? Should be be out of here by 7.30, I think. Um, normal time. Peter has a simple message throughout this book. It's not very complicated. I know we spent a lot of time in chapter 2, like we did with we're doing with Jude, and we're talking about the character, the description of false teachers. But there's, if you just take Peter's whole book, Second Peter, and kind of boil it down to what is left, there are seven commands in this book, which is highly unusual for a New Testament epistle. Usually there's a lot more than that. But two of them he covers in chapter number one. And both of those are, are made in such a urgent type of request, because the, the Greek can give you an urgent or they can give you a don't quit kind of command. It's either start, I like to say that way, start, get busy, or keep going, keep going, keep going, don't quit. There's the two kinds of commands uh, that the Greek can offer. Well, Peter, in chapter 1, verse 5, and in chapter 1, verse 10, 10 both start with that urgent Urgent thing. Make room for these things. Be diligent. Be diligent. Be diligent. He's just calling on them to get started on something that it appears that they were not doing. And then all the way through chapter number uh, 1, from verse 10 on, all the way through chapter number 2, well into chapter 3, there are no more commands until you get to verse 8. And then, it's like the grand finale, which we were kind of missing last night, the fireworks. <laughs> it's like, what happened to the grand finale? Everybody wants the grand finale, and it just kind of went, and it was done. And so, this is not how Peter ends his book. He suddenly just pops with commands from verse 8, from verse 14, from verse 15, verse 17, verse 18. Only one of those is urgent. The rest of them are, keep going. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And we're going to see the nature of those as he goes. 
but most of them are related to your growth. And I think that's kind of neat to look at that, because all of us can stand that kind of encouragement. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Wherever we are in our Christian growth, we have room for more, don't we? And that's the urgency that goes into the, the, you know, the, the way he expresses himself as to appealing to their growth. And chapter two is the danger of their growth. But now he's saying, grow, come on, just keep going. Don't stop. Keep going, keep going. And I love the push that he gives in that. And honestly, I think that's what's lacking in some churches. There's no push to grow. They're just there to fill their time, to check the list for the week that they went to church and they go back home and and they say they did that thing. But we're called to grow. And we know that. And it's kind of nice to have somebody come alongside and and keep coaching you on, especially when you're running and you're tired and it feels like you can't get your breath. It's a good thing to have somebody beside you who says, keep going, keep going, keep going. And that's Peter's nature. You're going to see that in chapter number 2. How, or three, rather, how he works that into his practice. But we start with his passion first. In verse number one, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. This is the second time I've written to you, which is easy to mark because this is Second Peter, right? We have a first Peter. That was the first time he wrote. This isn't hard. Second Peter is the second time he wrote, and he's writing to the same folks. He says, I'm writing you a letter, and uh, it involves two things specifically. The purpose of my letter involves the Word, and it involves you. And that's what it comes down to. He says, I am writing to you. The second time he's been down this road, but this is his passion. He has a message to tell them. That's why you write to people, right? You have something on your heart. You want to get that message out to them. Anymore, we text it to somebody or, or email it to somebody. But in their day, they wrote it. And that wasn't always just something you just pull out, scrap a piece of paper and do it. I mean, that was all the parchment days and all those other things. That wasn't an easy task. And to take the time to write to somebody, you must have something on your heart. How many times do you see that? That Paul would say, I have something I've got to write to you. Or John would say, he did that in both of his epistles, 2 and 3. He says, I have something I want to write to you, but I'm not going to do it in pen and ink. I'm going to come and see you. And he'd said that several times. He says, I, I just want to tell you this message. And Peter here is saying, I am writing to you. I am writing to you. This is the second time I've written to you. And notice what he calls these yous in verse number one. What's the term he uses for him? Beloved. Isn't that a sweet word to find in a letter? Somebody's writing to you and they say, Listen, my beloved, I, I, I really care deeply about you. He uses that. Matter of fact, this is what's really cool. In chapter 3, he uses that four times, that phrase. As he's writing, he says it here in verse 1. He does it again in verse number 8. But don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. He does it again in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, he does it again down in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, 
he just keeps rattling off that, reaffirming to them his, his love for them. But there's something more to that word. Because it's based on the word agape. And you like that word, don't you? This, this word agape, the, the noun form of it, this is an adjective being used here. But the, the concept behind it is divinely loved one. It's great to be loved by God, isn't it? Peter recognizes that to these folks. He's writing to people that belong to Jesus Christ. He says, you are loved. And that's why Peter loves them. On top of that, it's just they are loved by God. And he keeps saying it. You, all of you, I'm writing to you. You, who are loved by God, I want to tell you something. You can see his passion, at least in the nature of these words. He, he, he's really letting his heart go out to them. Remember, Paul tried that with the Corinthians. He says, I really am unloading my heart, and, you know, I don't know if it's getting through at all. He's, unload your heart back, right? He can't say things like that, because they, they just weren't responding to him in the same fashion. And Peter says, I'm just going to unload my heart to you. There's a, there's a definition I, I've seen of passion. We use words like intensity, um, fervency, different words like that. Uh, when Charles Spurgeon wrote this wonderful little book called The Soul Winner. I don't know if you've ever read that before. It is a powerful little book on evangelism. It, it is. Actually, it took me off guard. The first time I read it, um, I was, I'm just always interested in picking up Spurgeon books. And I found it in a, in a little old bookstore for 79 cents, a hardback copy of The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon. I said, oh, that looks interesting. The cover was absolutely ruined. Somebody had put coffee on there too many times. It was all warped up and everything with a big old coffee ring in the middle of it. I opened it up and every single sentence is underlined. Highlighted, different colors, words in the margins, everything. I said, this must be a good book. <laughs> Somebody absorbed it in their reading of it, and they spent a lot of time with it. So I love that little book. It sits on my shelf, and I read it, and, and especially when people have done all those underlining, I think, oh, I should stop and read that again and see what was so important to them. But anyway, first time I read through that book, what caught my heart was one phrase he used in his manner in which he preached. He was defining passion. This is what Spurgeon said. He says, For my own part, when the Lord helps me to preach... After I've delivered all my matter and have fired off my shot so fast that my gun has grown hot, I have often rammed my soul into the gun and fired my heart at the congregation. Isn't that cool? I said, wow, what a picture that is. I've read a lot of his sermons, and he says more in 45 minutes than some people say in a whole ministry. Just the passion he puts in describing the love of God and, and the difference it makes in somebody's life. That passion is, is so exciting to see. I love reading about that. And when I read about Peter saying, I'm doing this for the second time. Beloved, I'm writing to you. I, I see a passion in that that I say, boy, I want that. I want things like that. Years ago, we, we used to go to a camp we called Camp Shackamack. Many, many years ago, when we were up in Indiana, and we pastors were the counselors. 
that was kind of risky. Spend five days of your life with a bunch of little kids high on Mountain Dew. It was like, <laughs> you come back and you say, boy, church work is a vacation compared to camp. But we, we had it set up so all the regional pastors in our area, our IFCA guys, we were the counselors at the camp. And we sat with the kids, and we listened to the, the things. We taught them and all these other things. There was one year, there was a little boy there. His name was Jun, J-O-O-N. He was South Korean. He was about uh, nine years old, I think. And these South Korean little boys, boy, they love to learn stuff. He followed me around the whole week. There were some... I don't know, 50 or so Bible verses they had to memorize. That's all he wanted to do. Memorize scripture, memorize scripture, memorize scripture. He'd follow me all day long. Ready? I'm ready with another verse. I'm ready with another verse. He ran out of verses. I had to start telling him, here's another. Let's try First John. You know, and he starts memorizing verses after verses after verses. And he had packed them up. Uh, I mean, a heavy amount of them. But this is what I liked about him. More than just the fact he followed me around everywhere, and it was even at nighttime, you're falling asleep, and he says, I got a verse, got a verse. And it's like, June, let's go to sleep first. But what I liked about it was this. This is one phrase he said, right in the middle of all that. This feels good. I wonder when's the last time we were reading God's Word and said, this feels good. This is good. That's, that's the kind of thing that... Peter is trying to, this is good. I love this, this passion. This is good. This is what it's about. I'm writing to you, you who I love so dearly. This is good. He just went through one of the hardest chapters in Scripture, describing a false teacher and all. He says, yeah, this is good. This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to write to you. What, what is his practice? His practice. Still in verse number one here, he says, uh, I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Hebrews 10.24. Let's see if anybody knows it before they turn there. Has something to do with provoking people. Almost. <laughs> Did you know Christians could provoke people? On purpose? Oh, stir one another up. Yes, yes, there it is. Let us consider how to, the King James says, let us consider how to provoke one another, how to stimulate one another onto love and good works. Yes. So you can be provoking and know it's biblical if it's done the right way. If they come out with good works and they come out with love. But here's the, here's the thing about that little phrase. Let us consider how to stimulate. There's the same word that Paul, uh, Peter's using here of stirring up, stimulating something. To, to, he says, I'm writing in order to stir you up. He's continuously wanting to stir them up. Uh, what, a, what an interesting picture for this. It speaks of a consistency in ministry. He, he always, always is ably, aiming at, I'm going to use the word as the Greek says it, agitating them. Agitating them. That, that's usually negative in most of our things, but it also has in its list of synonyms the words like excite, 
or the words like uh, stir up, uh, the way the actual word has to do with awaken, awaken somebody. And what's really fun about it is it's a compound word in the Greek using the preposition before that, so it's intensified. How do you wake somebody up intensely? <laughs> this could be very aggressive, get it? The, the idea of intense waking them up. Um, what's, what's fun about this is it's also the word for raising the dead. And Peter said, can you see somebody writing to you and say, I'm writing to you so that I can wake you up like you're dead? <laughs> it's like, what a sad congregation that would be, that he has to stir them up like that. But he says, you're, you're, you need to be brought up sitting, not lying down, up, up, excited, agitated. What is it? What is it? He says, well, um, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. Most of the time we think they should aim at the heart. Isn't the message just designed for the heart? We're supposed to aim for the heart. Actually, Peter says, no, I'm going to aim for the mind because you're a beloved one. You already have a heart that belongs to the Lord. I think the mind is the activity of the will. He says that many times, even though we love the Lord, the will sometimes is a little rusty. The will sometimes is resistant. The will sometimes is hard to get out of bed. He said, so I'm going to aim at your will. I'm going to aim at your mind, beloved. He calls it a sincere mind. There's, there's a picture of this. Simple thing. Uh, good intentions. You ever use that phrase? Oh, it's just good intentions. What does that mean? I planned to do it, but I didn't do it. Sincere. Yeah, they have sincere minds. But why do they need woken up? They have a sincere mind. A, a sincere mind is kind of interesting because there, there, um, there are some Latin scholars who hate this definition. But I'm going to give it anyway. All right? Sere, C-E-R-E, is one of the words. And the other words that go with it is S-I-N-E, sine, or sine, or sine, which is no wax. That's sincere. No wax. Sine, sere, put those two words together, is sincere. Sincere is actually the Latin word. Without wax. You say, huh? A mind without wax? I know earwax is a problem, but mind wax? What's that? It's, it's the picture is that they used to sell pottery in the marketplace. And if it was cracked and defective, you could rub wax over the cracks. And somebody would see that and say, oh, it's a perfectly fine piece of pottery. I'm going to buy it. And so there was, there was a lot of pottery sold that was inferior. I mean, what good is a pot if you take it home and it leaks? But you couldn't see the leak. And so what they did, they would hold it up to the sunlight. And the sun would come through the wax, and they could see the crack from the inside. And that was one of the tricks to find out if this pottery was without wax. We called it sincere. It was genuine. It wasn't, it wasn't hiding anything. Uh, the other thing they would do sometimes, besides just using the sun, if maybe it was a cloudy day, just apply a little heat to it. And you know what wax does? 
it'll melt right out of the crack. So I think a picture is kind of cool here about our minds. Can our minds be held up to Jesus Christ, Him as our light, and there's no cracks in us? Can it be held up to the heat of, of a very difficult time? Take chapter 2, is pretty tough. Can our minds go through that and come out sincere still? No cracks. Here Peter is encouraging them. He says, you have a sincere mind. I really like that. In light of the fact that chapter 2, the, the false teachers had minds full of dirt. And here these folks have sincere minds. Now obviously, which one should we have? The sincere side. We should be that way. And I love the way Peter's addressing them. He says, you have a sincere mind. You have a sincere mind. And I'm aiming toward that mind right now. You're, my, you're somebody I love dearly. And, and I'm going to give myself to writing to your mind right now to have you remember. Remember. J. Werner McGee made this comment. A man said to me, I have a good memory. My problem is that my forgettery is even better. You ever have that problem? There's a Latin proverb, to relax the mind is to lose it. Hmm. That one's interesting. Another one, the mind is like the stomach. It is not how much you put into it that counts, but how much it digests. Or, the mind of a man is like a clock that is always running down and requires to be constantly wound up. Now you got Peter there. <laughs> He's cranking up the, old, the clock on their mind. He says, you have a sincere mind, but it still needs to be agitated. It needs to be remembering. And there's a problem we do have as Christians even. These minds are very valuable. They're very valuable. The Lord has given to us a precious thing with a mind. And we could fill it with garbage in a hurry. Or we can guard it. And Scripture talks about guarding it. Matter of fact, it even talks about the fact that God, when you trust in Him, the peace of God guards your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. I love that passage in Philippians. That God does this. He protects that very precious thing that we're called a mind. And yet, sometimes we have a, a, a problem remembering stuff. It's not hard to remember what the world bombards us with. Because they do it constantly, don't they? All the time. Same thing, over and over, bombard, bombard, bombard. It hits us over and over with the message. We catch the catchphrases. We see those. We recognize them. We see them over and over. We could be reminded of those in a hurry. So what's, this, what's the solution? More time in God's Word. If we're going to be remembered remembering the things that are right and true and pure, if we're going to let that sift through and take all the communications and make them to be sincere in our minds, it has to do with remembering what is good. What is good. And Peter says, I'm going to remind you. That's my goal. I'm going to remind you. Remind you, remind you, remind you. If you haven't noticed, I do that a little bit in my sermons. I've learned that from Peter. This idea, don't stop saying it again, because 
it's needed. Because we can forget so easily. If I was talking with Pamela this afternoon. If I just did topical sermons all the time, you just have 11 years of little bitty messages here and there. How do you ever put those together? Or if you say this week, boy, that was so good, I'm going to live by that. And then next week, boy, that was good, I'm going to live by that. And then after a while, what are you living by? A whole bunch of little pieces that aren't even constructed right. And so I, I like to do this expository manner. I like to go from book to book. I like to go from verse to verse, sometimes word to word. But what am I doing? I'm trying to reinforce it, reinforce it, reinforce it, so we could remember it. So we could remember it. Again, J. Vernon McGee, boy, he said a lot of wonderful things. I don't know if you've been blessed by his ministry. I have. And I enjoy listening to his things. He once was told by a lady on the way out, well, you preached that sermon before. And he says, well, yeah. And if it didn't bear repeating, I shouldn't have preached it in the first place. I said, ah, there it is. (laughs) We repeat it. Peter practiced that way. He repeated, he repeated, he repeated. And he says, I'm going to remind you. Look back in chapter number 1. There's a good, clear example, verse 12 through 15. He says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth, which is present in you. That's a high compliment. You know this. You've been established in it. You you are growing in it. Everything's great with you, but I'm going to remind you. And I consider it right, verse 13 says, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, I'm still in my body, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, my death is imminent. So as also the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. He wants to so instill it in their minds, he could walk up the scene and they still hear the words. That's quite a ministry. And that's what Peter has set his, his mind to it. He says, this is, this is what it's all about. That's my practice. That's my practice. What's your purpose, though? I'm going to call these things to mind that you should, verse number two, remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I would simplify it simply like this. I want you to know the word of God, to live the word of God, to please the Son of God. If he could say it in simple words, I think that's what he would say. I want you to know the Word of God, to live the Word of God, and please the Son of God. He has a goal in mind. I want you to always be able to call this to mind. The the picture of this is like carrying it in a basket. (laughs) Just like carrying it in a basket. I want you to always have this tool inside. Always ready. Always ready. It's with you. Kind of like some of you, I noticed some of you just carry a pair of pliers on your, off your belt. Some, especially a lot of the farmers around here, they just carry a pair of pliers. For a long time I couldn't figure out, what's the deal with the pliers? I mean, I, I'm a hammer I can understand, but what's the pliers all about? I didn't know all the things you could do with a pair of pliers. 
It's amazing what you could do with a pair of pliers. And that, to me, was an, it was a tool. After a while, it was, uh, it was necessary. You can hammer with a pair of pliers, can't you? There's almost anything you can do with a pair of pliers. I was amazed. Peter says, I want to put this in your mind like you're carrying it. A tool you will never lose. You always have. I, I'm going to... The word is born. B-O-R-N-E. Born in mind. It says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Until you're carrying it yourself. What is, what is it he wants them to carry? You see it right there in verse number 2. Just give me two pictures of this. What represents the first and what represents the second? It's real simple. Think of the division in your Bible. The Old and New Testament. Look at how he says it so simply. He says, first I want you to be able to carry in a basket, in your mind, the teaching, the words that were written beforehand by the holy prophets. I want you to know it. The Old Testament is so neglected anymore. There are some denominations, actually some groups, that they won't preach anything unless it has Paul's name on it. That's all they ever preach. Forget John, forget Peter, forget James, you know. Just give me Paul, they said. Just give me Paul. And, and it's kind of funny because Paul talks about the rest of Scripture being inspired and good and profitable, right? But they somehow missed that verse. I don't know how. It's right there in Paul. But the value of knowing the Old Testament, what good is that? It's old. Isn't that what it means? it's dusty, it's not relevant, they said. But wow, the pictures. Those things are written for our good. They were written as example to us. And we read through it and we say, oh, boy, that was a dumb thing to do. How many times have you said that in the Old Testament when you're reading about somebody? Oh, why do you do that? Even after you know the story, you're reading hoping it's different this time. But nope, he did it again. Same thing, he, over and over and over. And there's a frustration that comes with this book. Second Kings is almost something to gag over, just reading it and saying, what is wrong with these people? Go to the book of Judges. Rarely is that the encouragement chapters. All right? Because we don't find a lot in the book of Judges. It's just heavy, over and over. And then Jeremiah's prophecy? Woo! But what's the point of it all? I like to say, this is how you shouldn't do it. It's almost written that way. How not to do it. Don't act like that. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. God is very kind to give us examples that we don't have to live through. <laughs> we see them mess up and we say, oh, wow, how did that happen? But there are good news stories in the Old Testament too, aren't there? People of faith who trusted the Lord when there was nothing left and they're up against the wall and there's no hope at all, and suddenly, God answers. <laughs> I love those stories. I love those stories. I love the story of Jehoshaphat. Some people can't even spell his name. But good old King Jehoshaphat. He's in big hot water, trouble, everywhere around him. The enemies are coming in on him, and they just want to get rid of him and replace him with somebody else on the throne. And he just went to the Lord and says, Lord, what do I do? He called for a fast. Everybody pray. 
And they're all praying together. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And, and God says, Jehoshaphat, don't worry about it. I got it. You, you, you just you stay put. I'm going to take care of this tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And Jehoshaphat sits back and he says, well, okay, um, but I'm sending the choir. And he got the choir together, the Levitical priests, put them out in front of the army and marched down to the battleground just to watch. And as these guys are singing praise to the Lord, the Lord came in and destroyed all the armies in front of him. And all they had to do was pick up the stuff that was left. What did you like to have lived through a story like that? I don't know. But I think, wow, is that exciting? What was the rush that came on the people of Israel when they saw Goliath go down on the, on the ground? What about when the walls of Jericho just crumbled in front of them? All these stories we read of in the Old Testament, they, they give us a thrill because we say, God did it! God did it! And don't we need that? We need that illustration too. Because sometimes we live as if God doesn't hear us. As if God's not even paying attention. Like God can't move anything anymore. He must be old. He must be tired. He must be asleep. He must have retired. I don't know. what's the, Where is God? Is he not the same God that Jehoshaphat knew, that Joshua knew, that David knew? He is. So he says, I want you to know what the prophets wrote. I want you to carry that as a toolbox in your mind of what God has done in the Old Testament. I want you to know it. These holy prophets were tools of God to give you a tool from God. That's what they offered to you. And I said, we ought to know those books. I challenged my Sunday school class here this morning. I said, what if you walked around in heaven and you walked into Obadiah? What are you going to talk about? You wrote a book? Uh, what was it about? <laughs> Do you know anything about Obadiah? <laughs> Do you know what he did? Do you know what he wrote? Was he the same guy? This is just a trivia question. You have to look it up. Is he the same guy that was hiding all the prophets in the cave during the days of Elijah? Obadiah was feeding somebody. There was a guy named Obadiah. I don't know if that was a common name back then. But there was a guy named Obadiah who went every day to feed, I don't know how many, 400 or so prophets that were hiding in a cave. Every single day he went to feed them. Because they were in, in danger of being killed. That could be the same Obadiah. I don't know, but if you want to research that, go to it. It's kind of fun. But you need to know guys like Obadiah, Habakkuk, Joel, Amos. These kind of individuals. Most of the time we hear those words and we say, well, I, I think they're in the Old Testament. And since they're short words, they must be minor prophets. And so we go looking for them in that list. And yet, that section is greatly neglected in our word. Do you know that? One of the chunks of history in the Old Testament that's more neglected than any other is after the Babylonian captivity. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Esther every now and then, a good woman's conference. Bring out Esther. Esther, uh, Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. You say, who are those guys? What do they do? There's such an incredible chunk of history. It's only a hundred years long. And all these guys were active in it. And it's an amazing study. An amazing study. 
If you go and read Nehemiah's book, you understand why I call him the John Wayne of the Old Testament. He, he had a way of getting people's attention, which included slugging them. We can't do that anymore, but he did. So, he says, I, I want you to be able to carry in your toolbox the Old Testament. I want you to know it. And I think we need that today. If nothing else, fill the gap where it's neglected. Spend time in the Word. But notice that's not the only place. He also says, and the command of our apostles of the Lord and Savior are New Testament stories too. The letters written by the apostles. By the time Peter is writing, Matthew is written, Mark is written, Luke is written, John has written, except for a couple of books, I think. Well, it's close. All right. You've got uh, the book of Acts. John, maybe not. The book of Acts, you have. You've got uh, uh, all the epistles up to, well, about, about up to the point where Jude would write. Jude's writing about the same time. You've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. That's to come. Revelation, that's to come. But a, a vast bulk of the New Testament's already written. And he calls it Scripture. Think of that. Paul's writing, that's Scripture. James is writing, that's Scripture. It's amazing that they recognized it so quickly. It was the commandments of our Lord and Savior. And they recognized it as such. He says, you got to know that too. You know how big of a challenge that was in their day? How many of them carried Bibles? Well, if you carried scrolls, you had your arms like this. All right? That would have been the Old Testament. And the New Testament were a bunch of letters sent out on parchment, and some people copied them down, and you had copies. But it wasn't like this book you hold in your hand. The binding was just not there. It wasn't printed that way. It was difficult to carry. And yet he still didn't hesitate to call them into accountability to know it. How much better do we have an advantage here? We carry it. We carry the whole thing in one book. Think of that. Or on your phone. There it is. They say that we don't have any excuses. I, I think that's true. But what does Peter just simply say? Let, let me say it this way. The Bible is sufficient for you. It's the only tool he calls on them to carry. In their mind, he says, you need to know God's word. In their heart, you need to know God's Word. He's not adding 14 seminars. He's not adding trips here and there to authenticate it. He's not adding all these other things that we have on our shelves that, that comment on this and comment on that and comment on that. He just says, what do you need? What do you need up here? God's Word. Do you believe that's sufficient? Just ask you to think that through. Is that sufficient for what we need? Is that enough to stir us up? This is what this is interesting to me because pastors, I know them, they're out there. They're always at this dilemma. What do I preach next? Next week. If I just did this week, this one, what do I preach next week? And they go through this routine every single week of trying to create something new and different. When Peter says, there's enough in the Old Testament and New Testament to stir you up. That's plenty. And I'm just going to keep reminding you of that over and over and over again. 
So you see his passion, preach the word. You see his practice, to repeat the word. You see his purpose, so that you could remember the word. And that's what Peter's up to. His passion, his practice, his purpose. How beautiful that is in contrast to chapter 2. The false teacher's activities. It's just refreshing to me to stop here and say, Oh, that's just what we needed. You know, after about 10 days of real hot weather, which we had a little bit ago, that rain came down the first time and we thought, Oh, how refreshing that was. We didn't know there was 10 days of that too. But it was so refreshing after something so hard to get something so nice. And I think that's where we start chapter 3. It's something so nice after such a hard chapter. And so I read this and I say, you know, this is what, this is the kind of ministry I love. To keep sharing God's Word over and over and over again. And I hope that you love that too. Many of you are teachers in one way or the other. You're working with kids in the Sunday school or, or some other place. What, what is your practice? What is your passion? What is your purpose for doing what you do? What, what is motivating you to share God's Word this week? And I think it's wonderful to be part of a Bible church. I love the word Bible in our name. That to me says a lot. People say, well, what kind of church is yours? It's a Bible church. They say, well, what denomination? I say, it's Bible. It's the Bible, okay? It's all about Bible. That's what we're here for, It's Bible. And I like to say it this way. After all, it's our middle name. It's Bible. And I think that's why we need to feast on it, right? I hope you have a passion for it. I hope you can't get enough of it. You just got to go over it again. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. But grow in your passion. Grow in your your. Grow in your, your practice of it. Grow in your purpose for it. Just like Peter has shown us here tonight. Next week we're going to start getting to end time things. That's always fun when we start in verse number 3. So we'll leave it where we are tonight. Our time's a little bit up. Any questions or comments? More than two minutes this week. No? All right then. Then we're going to have to quit. Steve, you want to close with some prayer?